The Wendigo is the legendary monster of our Anishinaabe people, the villain of a tale told on freezing nights in the North Woods. You can feel it lurking behind you, being in the shape of an outsized man, ten feet tall, with frost-white hair hanging from its shaking body. With arms like tree trunks, feet as big as snowshoes, it travels easily through the blizzards of the hungry time, stalking us. The hideous stench of its carrion breath poisons the clean scent of snow as it pants behind us. Yellow fangs hang from its mouth that is raw where it has chewed off its lips from hunger. Most telling of all, its heart is made of ice. Robin Wall Kimmerer, Braiding Sweetgrass. Samantha Engel. And I'm Aaron Gullius, and this is Great Lakes Lore. How are you, Sam? I'm doing okay. How are you? I am not bad. Not bad at all. It's cold. I'm hungry. I just ate a little bit ago, but I'm hungry. Not hungry enough to feast on human flesh, but... Well, that's good. <laughs> I'm glad there. we're distance recording. <laughs> yes, because, you know, cannibalism <laughs> is something that happens during, during harsh times, as we are going to hear about a little bit tonight or today, or whenever you happen to be listening to it. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the Wendigo, or Wendigo. It is spelled in in English a couple of different ways, W-I-N-D-I-G-O, or W-E-N-D-I-G-O. And this is an Algonquin-based word that has been translated into English, so there are many other spellings, but these are just the two most common English iterations of the name. And so you just might hear us, I don't know, flip back and forth from when to go to when to go because it happens. <laughs> it's spelled differently. I don't know, Aaron, if you noticed, but when I was doing my research, I would search both and it yeah. made a difference sometimes it, to the it, results that were coming up. It did. It, it did. <laughs> so let's dive into first what the Wendigo is. According to Anishinaabe scholar Basil Johnston, the Wendigo is a creature loathsome to behold and is loathsome in its habits, conduct, and manners. It towers five to eight times above the height of a tall man and gives off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. He also notes the beast's tattered and bloody lips made by constantly chewing on its lips with jagged teeth. It's so hungry. It's just like gnawing on itself. (laughs) Delicious. It's it's, it's a great picture. It is. Um, It's really, really evocative. Yes. So Johnson goes on to explain that humans become Wendigo. Usually it's sort of a a selfishness, a hunger, a something that comes over them and they're transformed into this creature and they must continually eat human flesh, blood and bone. And it can't stop eating. It's never satisfied. It's never full. The meanings behind the name Wendigo give clues to the creature's nature. And this, of course, would have been common for folks who speak these languages. Johnston said that it may be derived from windago, it's two two different words there, which translates to solely for self, or from, we're going to try this, weenindigo, maybe. (laughs) I mean, that's how I'd say it, yeah. Yes, (laughs) which means fat or excess. So whatever way you look at it, it boils down to something that is constantly hungry. It's out for itself. And according to both Johnston and Robin Wall Kimmerer, who we quoted at the beginning of the show, it's the worst thing a person can be in Native culture, the selfishness. Indigenous communities rely on that community-mindedness. Food and other resources need to be worked for, sometimes through difficult labor, and they can be in desperately short supply, especially in the northern winters, where this legend seems to live on and, and thrive. So everyone must work together to find food, ration food, and never take more than is needed. So according to both of both of these scholars, a person becomes Wendigo through their own actions, their own selfishness, and transgressions against the community. And in his book, Johnston related a story in which a man brewed a cup of tea only for himself without offering it to anyone else. He immediately grew to giant size and felt a strange craving. He left the tribe and came upon a group of people who fell dead with fear, 
which then caused the man, now monster, to consume them. And it's this final consummation of the human flesh that causes it to become fully Wendigo. But there is hope. The Wendigo can be destroyed and the person can be redeemed. So there are tales of Wendigo being killed. In one story, which is a myth of of the Anishinaabe people, Nanabozo is able to trick him into drowning. And in another tale that was passed down, a girl was consumed by Windigo, and she's aware enough of this change that's taken place within her that she throws her own self into the fire to kill the Wendigo along with herself, but she saves her soul in the process. Johnston also states that if all men and women lived in moderation, the Wendigo would starve and die out. So self-awareness is a key in staving off the Wendigo or in defeating him once he has taken hold of you. And this is really interesting to me because it sounds on one level like a parable or mm-hmm. moral story. But as we're going to see, it was taken very literally by by many groups and many people. So it's not just a, a sort of moral metaphor. It's a, a visceral fear of an actual creature in mm-hmm. some cases or an actual condition. So it's both. And there's a lot to unpack inside of the Wendigo mythos. According to a piece written as a senior seminar paper by University of San Francisco graduate Elaine Toussignant, the Wendigo or Wendigo can be found in many indigenous Native American cultures. It's prominent among Algonquin peoples in this our Great Lakes region, but it stretched as far west as the Athabascan peoples in the forests of Alaska, as well as the Pacific Northwest. And there can be cultural differences between these tribes, however. We provided a basic rundown of the Wendigo story from a Great Lakes perspective above, but Robin Riddington looked at the myth from the Athabascan perspective and found that generally magic and sorcery were involved in changing a person into a Wendigo who still possessed the same negative qualities of selfishness to the point of cannibalism and an unchecked hunger. Can you imagine being afraid that like, if you upset somebody, they'll turn you into a Wendigo? No, I cannot believe that. <laughs> it would terrify me. I, I would yes. have a lot of difficulty living in, in a society where I could be cursed into being a, you know, always hungry monster who eats my own lips. I, I, I think that would <laughs> yes. be, you know, that would be, incredibly troubling to me <laughs> I mean, w- without question so cannibalism is a key component in discussing the wendigo in her essay Toussignant dives into the long colonialist history of that sort of concept of cannibalism in the americas as european colonists arrived at various points in the americas cannibalism was sometimes a claim used to justify the colonizing subjugation and civilization slash conversion of the indigenous peoples of the new world this is connected to some of the appropriation themes we find in pop culture so we'll be revisiting this later but it's worth pointing out that cannibalism never seems to have been anything actually accepted in these cultures the fact that a wendigo was one of their greatest monsters something reserved for those who forsake community and an important Wendigo trait was cannibalism. It proves that cannibalism was a reviled thing. It wasn't among the options you have in life is <laughs> cannibalism, you know, as an acceptable <laughs> thing. It, it absolutely wasn't. So were there actually cannibalistic monsters roaming the great lakes region and points further West? There are many tales that have been passed down to us of men turned Wendigo and Wendigo hunters We're going to take a look at some of those now. So the first individual that we're going to talk about is Jack Fiddler. He was an Anishinaabe man, and his actual name was Zawuno Gizigo Gobao, or something along those lines. He was referred to by English speakers as Jack Fiddler because he could play the fiddle. So I will continue to refer to him as Jack Fiddler because I do not want to slaughter his name over and over again. So he was born in the 1830s or 40s, they're not entirely certain, in northwestern Ontario. He was respected as the head of a clan of OG Cree, today known as the Sandy Lake First Nation. And others in the clan respected his healing abilities and believed that he was particularly well-equipped to kill Wendigo. Though some people believe certain medicines and tinctures could help stave off the Wendigo transformation, the only true way they believed to end a Wendigo was to kill it, thus killing the person. 
And according to an article I found on the OZY Media Network, Jack once told a minister that he had killed 14 Wendigo. So word finally reached the Royal Mounted Police of Fiddler's Work, and they set out to investigate. Along the way, they heard the tale of a young woman who, when suspected of being possessed by a Wendigo, was choked to death by her father and uncle. Her uncle was Jack Fiddler, so her father was Jack's brother. So Fiddler and his brother, Pesequan, were both arrested, and after 15 weeks in prison, Fiddler escaped and killed himself. His brother stood trial and was found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. Throughout the trial, headlines in local newspapers read things like devil worship among the Cree. Pesequan had no legal representation, and even when a member of the Hudson's Bay Company made himself available to speak on the traditions of the Cree and sort of explain the Wendigo beliefs and, you know, that, that these folks didn't think they were doing anything wrong, um, he, he wasn't asked. He just said, nope, no thank you. We, we don't need your... your your testimony. The judge reportedly said what the law forbids, no pagan belief can justify. So you can see sort of where the the level of the relations between the Canadian federal government and the indigenous peoples were at at this point. So some whites in the area even petitioned to have the ruling overturned after after Pesequan was found guilty. Those familiar with the Sandy Lake Cree attempted to explain that the that what these two were doing was quote, the opposite of murder, and that they shouldn't be punished for something they didn't believe was an offense. These folks were unsuccessful, and after losing two tribal elders, the Sandy Lake Cree signed a treaty with Canadian federal government, which caused them to lose much of their own sovereignty and culture. And the final um, paragraph in this this article, which we'll link to in the show notes, I, I thought was sort of an important one to read. So it says, Jack Fiddler, Zawuno, Gizigo, Gobao, and other medicine men killed those around them when their communities feared they were under siege by a powerful force capable of perverting their relationship with the land. Though he took on the Wendigos that came his way, the shaman himself stood little chance against the winds of change. And this article and a few other things I found really said that this was a case that the Canadian federal government used to sort of really put their own legal foot down and sort of try to really stamp out a lot of the beliefs of the natives and assert their authority over over the indigenous nations throughout the country. There's also the case of a man named Swift Runner, who was a member of the Cree tribe in central Alberta. He was married and had five children and traded with the Hudson's Bay Company and, and served as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. Now, Swift Runner, together with his wife, six children, brother, and mother, struck out in 1878 to his winter camp. The next spring, he returned alone and claimed that the other members had died from starvation or suicide or left the group. He led authorities to the first winter camp, where he said his oldest son had died of starvation. There, they dug up the body and found the emaciated corpse. At the next camp, they found the bodies of the wife and children, the mother and brother having left the group. He admitted to killing and eating his next eldest son, wife, and then the other three children. Some have argued that Swift Runner exhibited famine cannibalism, but his wife's father said the second camp was only 25 miles from the Hudson's Bay Company's post, where they could have gotten dried meat. It appears evident that famine was initially a problem at the first camp, but, Brightman argues, even if there was some reason they couldn't travel to the post, why would he have killed and eaten more than just the next family member? Perhaps the first killing had been famine-induced, but the rest were not. But honestly, how does a family sort of go on being a family and surviving after killing and the killing and eating of a family member? I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. as I was reading this, like all I could think was, even if that was, I, I don't even a decision that had been come to at some point or or just something that happened in the crazed moment of hunger or whatever it may have been like how how was this man supposed to be like whoa I ate one family member I must now stop and right return to normal society and we made it through this now like no yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work I I, I no. don't see how I don't see how the dynamics of the the, the family would, would return to anything mm. 
remotely mm-hmm. normal. Swift Runner was eventually arrested, tried, and hanged at Fort Saskatchewan in December of 1879. And one thing I found sort of similar to these stories of similar to the story of Jack Fiddler that indicates a change over time is an 1885 case where a group of men were convicted of murder for killing a woman who the tribe had declared to be possessed by a wendigo and there were like three older men sentenced to life in prison and one younger man sentenced to 20 years for manslaughter because when he fired his gun she was already dead so they said okay he he was involved but you know so they go to prison and then there's this outpouring of opposition to the sentence and eventually a couple years later their sentences are commuted so there's more of a recognition later on that okay there are some cultural things going on here that our legal system isn't fully qualified to judge and the what year was this he did not put this in the outline (laughs) no i didn't 1885 and the article i read makes the argument makes a couple arguments one is that by 1885 european powers including canada which was still fairly tied to the british empire at this point having that more european colonialist mindset was coming into conflict or coming into contact with legal issues like this this legal dualism in africa in india in other places as their empires get larger and so they're sort of wrestling with this where do the limits of british common law stop and having to make some kind of accommodations you know come in and that has its own sort of imperialist mindset because a lot of times the attitude was like these poor savages can't understand our laws so we have to take into account their backwards ways so there's elements of that but also going on in 1885 was the last big uprising of first nations peoples against the canadian government in that same area where this was taking place so the commutation of their sentences could also have been linked to the wider sort of pardoning of people who had taken place or who had taken part in that uprising. So just a few years later, it isn't as cut and dried as the story of Jack Fiddler was, which was very much a, we're going to stamp out, you know, this, this backwards way of looking at things and things are going to change around here to things are a little more complicated than we initially thought. I was going to say also though, it could be that they're like, well, with our boarding school systems and all this kind of stuff and civilization, quote, civilization efforts that are going on, we're not going to have too much more of this to deal with. So like, let's, you know, because of those reasons, we're cool with this, but really in 20 years, we're not going to have to deal with any more of these (laughs) Wendigo claims either. Yeah, that, that could be, that could absolutely be part of it as well. Yeah. All right, back to the outline. So the final individual that we're going to talk about is named Espanol. And he was an Anishinaabe leader in the Grand Marais area. So we're talking about like northern Minnesota and the coast of Lake Superior. And according to Timothy Cochran's book, Gitchibitabeg and Grand Marais, early accounts of the Anishinaabe and the North Shore fur trade when a Wendigo threatened Espanol's band, his tribe, he was called upon to kill it. Cochran states that Espanol traveled far to Basswood Lake to find the Wendigo. He found the man. It was worded really strange in the book. It's just this little tiny bit about this larger story of the individual Espanol and kind of the British, indigenous, American trading situation in this whole region. But it's just this really interesting little connection he makes to the Wendigo here. But so he travels out and he finds the man and kills him. And the North Shore band he led was very relieved when he returned and said he'd taken care of things. The interesting thing I thought is that Cochran places this story inside of the narrative of outside intruders. Espanol had fought with the British in the War of 1812. This is a situation where they, you know, had been trading with the British this whole time and thought that the British were the ones who would have in the end, their best interests at heart, as opposed to these Americans who are just going to keep pushing west and changing sort of the hierarchy and the flow of everything. Um, 
So, so they had sided with the British in the War of 1812, and he wanted to protect the land and people from the Americans as they moved west after the war and as the um, American fur company comes in. But the Wendigo, he uses another instance, sort of another example of Espanol protecting his people. So like I said, it's a larger narrative about Espanol and his life and sort of this, this whole region that we're talking about, but a really interesting connection, I thought, that, that he was making here. Yeah, it's interesting how this small episode from Espanol's life was used as a sort of illustration for his, his wider impact and career. When we return, we're going to look at some of the ways the Wendigo has penetrated popular culture over the last hundred years or so. All right. Well, we'll take a midway break and we'll be back with that. Next time, we are looking at the Nain Rouge, which is another French thing. So more French for me to mispronounce. (laughs) Well, it's... The Great Lakes region. They were here. Right. I know. I know. (laughs) I know. I'm just not good at it. (laughs) You can find Great Lakes lore all over social media. We're on Twitter and uh, Instagram at Great Lakes lore. And we have a Facebook page as well. So feel free to comment at us or leave us your questions that you have on the episodes and we'll, we'll be sure to reply. And if you'd like to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash chizomedia, where we have many, many interesting things for you from early access to episodes and extended versions of episodes and bonus episodes and articles about the research we're doing and all sorts of interesting things are there with a couple different uh, sort of donation tiers to suit your needs a lot of fun over there we're we're thrilled with the response and we really appreciate everybody's support so far so um, patreon.com slash media or if it's easier click the link in the show notes so aaron i have a confession yes i have not finished reading mothman prophecies <laughs> well i have not finished reading incident at devil's den either so <laughs> I, I think our, our monthly book thing will be monthly books we start and <laughs> gain things from and finish if helpful and move on if not. I so, just do so much stuff. <laughs> I've got so much reading to do for both podcasts in addition to the book that it, it sometimes gets sort of left by the wayside, especially if it's a a topic that is similar. And and so it's like, I'm already reading enough about aliens. I'm (laughs) really not sure I can read this other book about aliens Mm -hmm. that I don't need to have finished to record an episode or something like that. But we will we will soldier on. What is the category or topic? Oh well I was gonna first ask Um, if you had any new comments though about the book before we talk about what's Oh, about about incident at Devil's Den. It's interesting. I I like it. I I think once we get into more deeply into his personal experiences, the better it gets. Um, Unput downable, it it becomes. (laughs) It it, it, it becomes unput downable. Yeah, it it becomes a little less generic, a little more, a little more focused. And he's got a really good voice. Uh, I I like reading his writing. I, Mm. I think it's smooth. It's personable. It's it's easy. You know, it, it's it's an easy mm-hmm. book to read. It's not it's mm-hmm. not a slog. It's not a chore, which mm-hmm. sometimes these books can be. But no, it, it's it's very well done, and I'm looking forward to finishing it up. How about you? Well, if you follow me on Twitter a few weekends ago, I made quite a <laughs> stir with some comments about John Keel because he can't seem to bring up. Well, no, he can bring up a female and not talk about how she talk about her physical appearance and in those cases i assume he just did not find her attractive so he's not going to talk about what she looked like but lots of comments about the beautiful woman he's interviewed or the woman the 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 recent divorcee with a live body or something like that i'm I'm not enjoying the 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 sexist undertones of the book so much And I was, thoughts on that that I won't get into here. <laughs> I, I was I was telling you, you earlier off the air that that it's it's weird because 
you know, I, I read those passages and Mothman prophecies and that they kind of jump off the page because if, if you read Keel's, I don't want to say more boring stuff, but the more boring stuff like his book, the eighth tower or UFOs, operation Trojan horse, things like that. It's not like that, but Mothman prophecies gets into this, this sort of pulpy men's magazine kind of style which is you know he wrote a lot of that kind of thing and yeah it, it's it really is off-putting and a bit more than a bit dated yeah and i just can't believe that in all of the things that i've taken in about the mothman or whatever podcast tv shows like it's just not discussed and i think if we're at like in order to move forward, um, these things need to be mentioned. And I'm not, I mean, maybe John Keel's not actually a perv, wasn't actually a perv. And this just happened to be how this was written because it was written for a certain audience or whatever, but still it's there and still it's catering to a certain audience. And like, let's, let's just, let's just have a conversation about that. So also yeah. it's like some other weird, like, conversations about sex and oh alien just must be uh, pornographically obsessed with us and it's like no these people who are making out on lover's lane see the weird shit because they're all alone on lover's lane and that's where the weird stuff's gonna be walking by i don't know there's just a lot of he's just a hornball or something i don't know hey kind of kind of creepy dirty old man yeah <laughs> But anyway, so moving along, because we already talked about that now, longer than I had intended <laughs> us to, ne- this month, I was going to say next month, but we're seven days into this month at the time of this recording. We- so the the theme is to read a book about a folklore foreign to you. And so I was going to read Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman because I own it. And I'd love to learn more about Norse mythology. I have sort of some side projects <laughs> that deal with Norse mythology. So I probably need to need to read that. <laughs> and I was actually also going to pick that book, but uh, Sam mentioned it first. And so <laughs> then I realized I've got, because I got it free from a textbook publisher, an <laughs> anthology of Icelandic and Norse mythology and literature. So along the same lines, I'm not familiar with the folklore and the mythology. I am a big Viking person, though, big <laughs> sort of sort of early medieval Viking person. That's one of my areas. So and I have Vikings as ancestors. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Shall we get back to the Wendigo? Yes, let's dive into some pop culture. Yay. All right. So we're going to start off with popular culture with a short story or a novella. Um, I'm not sure the dividing line between a short story and a novella. It seems to change depending on who you're talking to. But a short story or novella by Algernon Blackwood called The Wendigo, which was published in 1910. And Algernon Blackwood was an early horror actually more of a weird fiction writer. It's its own sort of strange sort of pre-horror kind of genre. And he wrote this story and it's a, it's a scary story. It's a good story. But the description of the Wendigo in this is, is very much just kind of a generic monster. Um, it's described by one of the characters as it's nothing, nothing but what those lousy fellers believe when they've been hitting the bottle too long, a sort of great animal that lives up yonder quick as lightning and bigger than anything else in the bush and it ain't supposed to be very good to look at so it's just a monster it's just a scary monster and there's another description of it that is somewhat even more generic for the wendigo is simply the call of the wild personified which some natures hear to their own destruction i'm not even sure what that means it lures people to it so it howls, cries, calls out to you. And so it's that call of the wild that, you know, when some people hear it, it causes them to wander off. And it off, they end up like burning their feet. Their feet end up burning and can turn cloven as well. That's sort of part of a thing, to, part of it too, because they think that his feet had turned cloven. I, wasn't it cloven? Yeah, I think, I think? so, yeah. which, is, which is more of a, a sort of European devil, devil. sort of yeah. thing rather than, than, you know, Wendigo. 
but it's a very generic monster. And this is not unusual, as we'll, as we'll hear in a second, for Native American myths to just be sort of genericized into monstrous, scary things without much differentiation from other scary things. But The Wendigo is a very influential novella in that sort of weird fiction, early horror genre. So it, it's, a, it's a significant piece of literature, but it's not necessarily a, a, a faithful or accurate depiction of the Wendigo myth. Yeah. And so before we jump into a few more concrete examples of the Wendigo in recent pop culture TV shows and things, we have a bit of an analysis of, of the Wendigo in pop culture. And it comes from an article by Joe Nazar titled The Horror, the Horror, the Appropriation and Reclamation of Native American Mythology in the Journal of the Fantastic in the Arts. And so Nazar uses Blackwood's The Wendigo as an example of sort of a first wave of the use of Native American mythology in the horror genre. And the first wave positioned Native Americans and their myths as, quote, brooding boogeymen and howling inarticulate fiends of the wilderness. This, of course, morphs over time during the 1980s and 90s, The popular horror genre, whose literary and cinematic narratives are scripted primarily by whites, increasingly used subject matter in the darker elements of Native American mythology. And this represented what Nazar calls a second wave, using specific mythological elements and attempting to be more accurate in their portrayal, as opposed to Blackwood's use (laughs) of the Wendigo (laughs) name in the story, which was nothing like the Wendigo. He offers some possible explanations for this. On the one hand, the natural supernaturalism of Native American spirituality fits well with what Nazar describes as the romanticism of horror, since it often relies on the intrusion of the otherworldly into regular everyday life. On the other hand, it might just be seen as another variable to be plugged into horror's xenophobic formula. Nazar describes this formula as one that introduces a monstrous other that has to be defeated to preserve the status quo. In addition to these two options, Nazar acknowledges that the use of Native American mythology and horror may just be the latest version of a long trend in American literature, especially popular lit, that depicts Native peoples as bloodthirsty savages who were a threat to civilization. And he argues that one can trace this all the way back to the Puritan captivity narratives of the 17th and 18th centuries. This ties into the first wave he mentions, but encompasses large swaths of American literature. Nazar then traces the development of the horror genre in American pop culture, arguing that it intertwines with the narrative of Native American dispossession. The third wave, at an early stage when Nazar was writing in 2000, is Native American horror writers using Native American myths, so using their own stories for their writing. An example of a story that fits into actually that first wave or the second wave, depending on how generous you're being, is an episode (laughs) of the X-Files called Shapes from X-Files first season which it was broadcast in April of 1994 and it's the 19th episode of the first season. And I would argue it's, it's, it sort of falls into that first wave of very generic use of native American mythology or maybe misuse of native American mythology. So basically Mulder and Scully go to an Indian reservation in Browning, Montana, where a native American man, Joseph Goodensnake has been killed by a local white rancher in what was supposedly a property dispute. The rancher, however, claimed that he shot a monster, not a person. And his son, the rancher's son, has claw marks that support some kind of animal being on the loose. So at the crime scene, Mulder finds tracks that seem to change as he follows them from human to something like an animal. Scully doesn't agree. Obviously, that's what she's for. But she finds a chunk of shed human skin nearby. Ooh. Now, Mulder says there were similar reports going back to the 1950s. And in fact, the first case of this that the federal government dealt with was designated by J. Edgar Hoover as the very first X-File. And so Mulder thinks it's werewolves. 
Scully thinks it's clinical lycanthropy, which is more of a psychological thing. So later on in the episode, the rancher is ripped apart by a creature, and then his son is found unconscious and naked a few hundred feet away. Ooh, the suspense is building and we know who the bad guy is. So then one of the reservation's elders tells Mulder the legend of the Manitou, a creature that can possess someone and transform them into a monster. It passes to a new host through biting or when the original host dies. And every eight years, someone on the reservation is possessed. And this is the year. Now, there's a final confrontation with the creature. The creature is shot. And then when they go to find the creature who was shot, it's the rancher's son. So he had been infected by, you know, the bite and ends up being killed. And then the episode ends with the, the elder telling Mulder, see you in eight years, you know, because the monster's going to come back, right? So there's several issues with this episode. One of them is the use of the word Manitou. Manitou is not a monster. Manitou, no. Manitou is, is an Algonquian term for the spiritual and fundamental force that manifests everywhere in creation. There's also Geechee Manitou, which refers to the great spirit. It's about as far from a werewolf as it's possible to get. And this is just unconscionably lazy. It's almost like they, they found the first Native American spiritual term and just Oh, let's call the monster that. It's it's not good. And clearly, none of them have ever been like anywhere in northern Michigan because, like, as soon as Aaron told me this, I was like, "That's bad. That's wrong. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not right." Um, but I can remember. I mean, so if you go up to in the UP, there is in Munising, we have the Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore, and so you can take this pictured rocks boat ride it's a long lake superior along the shore and they talk about the manitou even on that like it's everywhere like it's not hard no (laughs) hard to get this right and they got the fact that it's an algonquin term and the reservation that is in this town in montana is you know it's a blackfoot reservation and the language they speak is that from that broad language family, they got that bit of it right. They just got everything else wrong. It's it's basically just a generic werewolf story set on a reservation, which was kind of the goal. Network executives told the X-Files people, you know, can you use a recognizable monster like a werewolf? And so they tried to come up with a new take on a werewolf story. I mean, you could have done like Skinwalker and I would have been more okay with it just being yeah. a werewolf than, than calling it Manitou for crying yeah, out Yeah, it's and I, I tried to find some interviews with the writers and all I found was an interview with the director who thinks they did a pretty good job of honoring native tradition because they found some authentic native drummers for a scene with a ceremony, but he couldn't be bothered to look up the word Manitou. Any effort towards being realistic in this episode went toward there is an undercurrent of distrust between the locals and our two FBI heroes, which in the episode is traced back to the wounded knee incident in 1973, which is a nice touch, but it doesn't make up for the general awfulness. This episode ranked 167 on uh, Thrillist's ranking of all 201 X-Files episodes from best to worst, and it is ranked way too high. I kept thinking I missed it. In from numbers 201 to about 195, I figured it would be in that bottom sort of chunk, but no, it made it all the way to 167, which is kind of an indictment on on how bad some X-Files episodes actually were as much as I love the show. So now we're going to turn our attention to comic books and Brady DeSanti is an associate professor of religion and director of the Native American Studies Program at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. In a 2015 article in the Journal of Religion and Popular Culture, he evaluated the degree to which several pop culture depictions of the Wendigo were accurate with regard to Native mythology, particularly Ojibwe understandings of the Wendigo. And so he talks a lot about the Wendigo's appearance in Marvel Comics. So since 1973... It has made 300 appearances in the comics, usually fighting the Hulk, Wolverine, Spider-Man, the X-Men, or Alpha Fight. So 
clearly a bad guy. (laughs) Usually he's depicted as a sort of Yeti werewolf hybrid with white fur, a tail, and sharp teeth and claws, rather than the traditional gaunt, thin, ice-hearted monster. He's the same size as the Hulk because otherwise, how would the two fight? (laughs) (laughs) In the creature's first appearance, which was an Incredible Hulk 162, The Hulk is in Canada and is mistaken for a creature who had taken a young man away. Eventually, Hulk finds the real culprit, the Wendigo, and there's a fight. We learn how this creature originated. There were three men who were attacked by wolves and hid in a cave. One of them died from his wounds, and one of the others cannibalized his corpse. So... We have the connection to cannibalism here, at least. (laughs) Um, And so the the one who eats his friend becomes a Wendigo. The being consumed by the Wendigo, Cartier, pleads for help, but the creature's spirit is too strong. The next Hulk-Wendigo clash saw the first appearance of Wolverine, who is my personal favorite (laughs) X-Man. Has been since I was a little (laughs) child. (laughs) Um, DeSanti points out that in Marvel stories, there are some things that are true to tradition, such as the cannibalistic details, which I mentioned, and occasional attempts to free someone from the Wendigo's control, usually involving some kind of ceremony. Usually there, there are no specific tribal identifications with people involved in these ceremonies in the comics. They're characterized as just generically Native American. While the usual Marvel depiction of the Wendigo is unlike traditional descriptions, there was a 1986 Spider-Man story that illustrated it as, in DeSantis' words, thin and wraith-like, unlike the usual Marvel monster. An episode of Marvel's Hulk and the Agents of Smash depicts a ski resort where the guests have been turned into Wendigos, led by the Wendigo King, who can only be defeated by destroying an amulet he wears over his heart somewhat analogous to the Ojibwe belief that a Wendigo can be overcome by melting its icy heart. So, Wendigo's all over the comics. It is a villain. Often doesn't look like what he's supposed no. to look like. So, sort of a fl- fluffy Yeti sort of thing. I was yeah. I was surprised that there are 300, over 300 appearances <laughs> of the Wendigo in Marvel Comics. Moving into television, an episode of a TV show that I inadvertently watched many episodes of because it was the only channel I could get charmed had anybody else remember charmed Um, it was it was okay first season episode of charmed from February 1999 was entitled the Wendigo and saw the three witch sisters dealing with a Wendigo one of them Piper is attacked by a Wendigo and becomes one the Wendigo who attacked her was a man who had killed his unfaithful lover and eaten her heart which of course is a usual normal reaction um, that you have to people and because he did that he became a wendigo and the other two sisters defeat the wendigo by firing a flare gun at him melting his frozen heart and when he is gone then their sister piper is freed from the curse and i i that's about all there is to the to the plot it, it, it's sort of there's a lot of running around and talking but that's about it there's no particular tribal background or sort of origin mentioned here and while there are wendigo specific features to the story the cannibalism the the frozen heart it's really more of a werewolf story with sort of wendigo overtones especially the you know oh he bit me now i'm turning into one sort of aspect of it so it's it's much better than than you see in, in some treatments but but still not wholly wendigo centric if that makes sense yeah so now we're going to turn to my personal favorite here supernatural and honestly they they're doing the best job here um (laughs) so there are actually two episodes of supernatural that seem to hearken to the wendigo the first is a straight up wendigo case it's the second episode of the first season And I did just rewatch both of these this morning, so I could be super conversant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Sam and Dean end up in Colorado, where some hikers have gone missing. And, you know, they end up sort of deducing what it is. And you might think, well, Colorado isn't any place that Sam and Aaron have talked about yet. Well, 
Sam and Dean said the same thing <laughs> because <laughs> um, Sam is the one who first thinks that it is in fact a Wendigo. And Dean says, well, I haven't heard about a Wendigo being in this area before. They're usually up in Minnesota or Northern Michigan or something. So, so they even, they make that connection, which I appreciated because that was one thing that I could remember. I was like, this doesn't take place in like a Wendigo <laughs> area, but it, you know, this is the beginning of the show. So it's definitely, you know, a monster of the week type of situation we've got going on here. So the monster seems to fit the most basic understanding of a Wendigo. It was a human whose cannibalism turned them into a flesh-eating monster. One thing that I thought was kind of strange is that Dean ends up drawing some Anasazi symbols on the ground to protect them at night because the Wendigo is a great hunter. They emphasize what a wonderful hunter the Wendigo is. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so overnight, as they're stuck out in the woods, they, they draw these symbols on the ground. But the Anasazi were traditionally in sort of the southwest the, of the portions of the United States and sort of that Four Corners area. I'm not sure how far north. I guess I didn't look into it how far north they extend through Colorado. But so it doesn't necessarily fit the, the Wendigo mythology, but maybe it does fit the location mythology. Eventually, they are able to kill the monster by also shooting a flare gun through its chest, although it does seem to follow in this case, I feel, because they're out hiking and they find the sort of the lair of the Wendigo where he's hoarding all of the hikers that he's been stealing and they find flare guns in someone's pack. And so that's what they use. And there's this nice scene where he like burns up from the inside, nice. sort of nice. harkens to that idea of melt, destroying him with the heat, right? Because he's supposed to be a winter type monster. So getting back to um, the article we mentioned in reference to the Marvel comics, that author DeSanti in his analysis of the Wendigo in pop culture credits this episode of Supernatural as doing, quote, a decent job of corroborating Ojibwe traditions, including the mention of Wendigo's Algonquin origins the creature having a heart of ice because it indulged in cannibalism and its gaunt appearance. I was going to say experience, which doesn't really make sense. <laughs> so if you just Google Wendigo and you see like the tall, skinny thing with long fingers, like that is sort of what you see lurking in the shadows. So there is then an episode later in Supernatural in season 14, episode 16. And in this case, the monster is called a Kahunta and it does eat humans and is in fact a changed human. According to this story, a group of white men settled in the area, and when faced with starvation, one member of the party eats the others, and he ends up then going after the local native tribes as well. They capture him and curse him to roam the woods hungry for human flesh. So the specifics are vague here. There's no actual tribe mentioned, and if you look it up, there is no actual Kahunta legend. It's it's completely made up. And in this case, the initial transgression was by a settler. So I just think it's interesting from 2005 to, oh, this was the second to the last season. So this is like 2019, probably 2018, I guess. This change where they went from taking an actual legend to making something up. They could have just done another Wendigo episode. It had been so far. But I didn't know if maybe this is perhaps a little growth as far as the show goes, instead of taking, you know, and sort of appropriating a legend from Native American culture, they sort of made up their own. Are they adapting to, you know, certain ideas and trends as they move forward with the cultural appropriation? I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, it, it is. It is an interesting question of do we adapt an existing real myth and run the risk of of getting it wrong and applying the sort of skewed outsider hollywood perspective to something people actually believe or do we create something out of whole cloth and hope we don't get criticized for you know making up a native american myth i, I can see how it could you know seem kind of wrong <laughs> yeah i mean either both way. of them yeah. could i mean i even in this case, well, I mean, in this case, I mean, they do, I think, do justice to the Wendigo in, the, in their first episode, but it's still, you know, sort of white Hollywood adapting an indigenous story, right? And, and, and using it in that way. So it's just, it's an interesting thing to think about. 
There are, of course, other examples of the films Wendigo and Ravenous, for example, but we wanted to stick to stories and things that we knew um, that we're conversant <laughs> in, had also easy access to see, perhaps, to reacquaint ourselves with. And, and so these X-Files, the, the comics, and Supernatural are things that Aaron and I both have taken in in the past. Now, it's not pop culture. But I'm going to talk about an idea that seemed to come to the forefront in the 1960s and 70s, and that's the Wendigo psychosis, which was an attempt by some ethnohistorians and psychologists to provide a psychological explanation for supposed instances of cannibalism um, among Algonquian-speaking tribes. So in many of these early cases of supposed cannibalism used in discussing the psychosis, the reports are from Europeans who undoubtedly had barriers to communication with the indigenous peoples they encountered, a lack of cultural understanding, and could have had their own motives and biases molding the interpretation of the events that they often heard secondhand. In one article from the 1980s, ethno-historian Robert Brightman makes a list of various Wendigo attributes and checks which sources mention which characteristics. And the sources are all European names. For example, in 1767, Brightman explains that a gentleman named Alexander Hendry, quote, observed an Ojibwe man who had killed and eaten four relatives during a food crisis. His guilt was discovered after he fell in with the band with which Henry was wintering. Henry wrote, the Indians entertain an opinion that the man who has once made human flesh his food will never afterwards be satisfied with any other. It is probably that we saw things through the medium of our prejudices, but I confess that this disturbing object appeared to verify the doctrine. He ate with relish nothing that was given to him, but indifferent to the food prepared, fixed his eyes continually on the children which were in the Indian lodge and frequently exclaimed, how fat they are. It was perhaps not unnatural that after long acquaintance with no human form, but such as was gaunt and pale from lack of food, a man's eyes should be almost riveted upon anything where misery had not made such inroads, and still more upon the bloom and plumpness of childhood. And the exclamation might be the most innocent and might proceed from an involuntary and unconquerable sentiment of admiration. Be this as it may, his behavior was considered, and not less naturally, as marked with the most alarming symptoms, and the Indians, apprehensive that he would prey on these children, resolved on putting him to death." End quote. Honestly, why wouldn't they have been nervous about this? This was a man who had, you know, tasted human flesh, had maybe developed a liking for it, maybe nothing else could satisfy him, and he keeps looking at the kids, drooling, talking about how plump they are, how juicy, how succulent. It would be very, very creepy, but like you point out, all these sources that Brightman talks about, these are all Europeans sharing secondhand sources that they've heard from natives and so how many different lenses are we seeing this through by the time it gets to the 1980s and we've got ethno historians and psychologists ready to develop whole diagnoses based on on these accounts yeah and not just that but you know the idea of the wendigo psychosis is really sort of a culture specific disease. That's what a lot of these articles were arguing for that, you know, maybe these stories of Wendigo throughout history and looking at these different people that they are suffering from something specific to this group of people. So it really seems like these psychologists and things from the 70s and 80s are trying to almost explain the history of the Wendigo um, through sort of this this psychological lens. And I don't necessarily think that that's apt. So as we start putting all of these pieces together, I think it's important to remember that these communities who developed this Wendigo legend were attempting to explain what was going on around them in, in a way that made sense with their worldview. So if there's somebody who hoards all the food, who eats another human because that seasonal famine was a very real thing that these communities faced during during the winter months, but who suffers madness and depression, you know, they even saw those as early onset 
when to go, right? Like if you're keeping <laughs> yeah. to yourself, if yeah. you're, you know, not talking to people, it's like, oh, it's because he's thinking about eating us. Folks who thought only of themselves threatened the community as a whole. And so this is how we get sort of the birth of the Wendigo. We have a lot of different things going on here. And so trying to explain just all of it through one psychosis doesn't really make sense. Additionally, cannibalism can be found across the globe. There are isolated cases of sort of that famine-induced cannibalism. I mean, just think, were they, what were they, soccer players or something who were stranded out in the Andes? Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, we all know the story of the Donner Party, right? Like, I mean, well, these are, uh, uh, yeah. What were I was just, say? I was just, just going to say it's not famine induced, but as a child of the 90s, Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, they're, yeah. oh, in, yeah. In, I mean, in and those Milwaukee. are like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are clearly like, yeah, not famine induced. Like no, uh, psych- psychosis. And, <laughs> yeah. Up there. Oh, and that reminds me, I forgot to mention it during the pop culture part, but the psych, the, the sort of psychological compulsion to eat people or whatever that might be. You find that in the TV show Hannibal as well. Of course, Hannibal is eating folks, but then as the main character is sort of learning that, you know, it's Hannibal Lecter who he can't trust or whatever, you know, he has visions first of a stag and then eventually the stag becomes the sort of Wendigo-like creature. And so it's never mentioned that it's a Wendigo, but that's the form it takes. So it, that can't be accidental and so they're connecting like that level of of you know psychological instability with with something like that as well but when europeans um first encountered this cannibalism or even the stories of the wendigo they would have undoubtedly used this as proof of an uncivilized people um that needed some kind of reining in whether to justify colonization in the 17th and 18th centuries or oppression of native peoples in the 19th and 20th And when you look at other sort of cannibalistic type practices, Europeans were taking part in them too. They were like eating parts of mummies (laughs) as different beauty products or or medicines or, or different things like that. And so cannibalism wasn't only sort of relegated to the Algonquin people in in sort of a way that these weird Wendigo psychosis articles seem to to try to explain it. So it's just a whole sort of frustrating mess i think to wade through now um because knowing what we know it's like what what were you doing back then guys (laughs) (laughs) so given what we've talked about we've mentioned the background of the wendigo it's it's cultural connections to the algonquin speaking peoples we've looked at how it's represented in pop culture and even some actual cases where folks were known as being wendigo killers or people who have gone wendigo what do we do with all of this then? Because sure, it's it's an interesting story, but it also seems like there's some kind of a larger lesson or something that we need to take away from all of this. I mean, monsters, I read once in a book that you can tell as much about a people from the monsters that they create and believe in as you can from their origin stories. So wh- what do we do with this? <laughs> well, I, I think one of the things that jumps out to me from this is just the distance we can put between the purpose of the story originally, that sort of balance in the community and and not taking more than your share and having to work together. And sort of the distance from that to the most extreme sort of generic monster story that we still call Wendigo, you know, in, in the present day and how divorced modern pop cultural retellings can be from those native roots you can get as many small details right as you want you know the icy heart and and the appearance and and whatever but i i'd never known about until we started working on this but i'd never known about that the sort of gluttony aspect and the people who are greedy and take more than their share you know being consumed by this endless hunger and that sort of parable aspect of it i'd I'd never known that because that might be the one aspect that doesn't get talked about in all of these modern popular retellings of it. Yeah. I, and I think that's an important point as we were getting ready to, re- well, not getting ready to record this <laughs> like a month or so ago, I was working on a program for work and I read Braiding Sweet, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And she talks a lot about the Wendigo because her book is focused on, you know, 
how we all need to work together and heal our relationship with the planet and take the honorable harvest and, and not ruin the land and all of this kind of stuff. And so, of course, the Wendigo plays into this discussion. And so that was the first time I had come across sort of the lessons that the that this monster is supposed to teach you. And she just mentions that it's the boogeyman story that you tell your kids so that they learn how to share. <laughs> and, right, right. you know, they don't run out and, and pick all of the ripe wild strawberries the minute that they're ripe. Because if you pick all of something, then there won't be any more of it for somebody else. And and so even, even the episodes of Supernatural, I think, that get the monster right, and they they connect cannibalism in there, so you get like a a touch of of sort of the famine and you know needing to find something to eat, but you lose all of this cultural meaning that's behind it. And so anytime you reduce something to a monster of a, of the week, <laughs> um, you're you're gonna forget the lessons because even in our worst stories, there are lessons to be learned. That that's why they're created, and that's why they're told, and that's why they're passed down. And so the other thing that Kimmerer mentions in her book, and I promise she's not paying me anything to talk about her book so much, <laughs> but it's, it's she's really welcome to, you, but uh... yeah, yeah, definitely. But I mean, if you have any interest in earth, nature, anything like that, I suggest you read it. But she mentions that quote, old teaching recognized that Wendigo nature is in all of us. She goes on to say that it's natural for all of us to want, but we need to see the dark, recognize its power, and not feed it. And I think that's that's a good thing for all of us to keep in mind in our everyday life. Look at us like providing people with these deep, meaningful lessons. In, in I was I was just gonna episodes. say that this is this is, the, <laughs> this is a, a, a lesson for us all. You know, as we as we look around our our planet, how much are we consuming, and what's the, the the cost of of our of our consumption of everything? And just this sense of balance in life is very important. And perhaps this is a good lesson and a good note to end on. Well, thanks for listening. The Wendigo: From Legend to Pop Culture was written by Samantha Engel, with additional material by Aaron Gullius. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore.